Okay, welcome back to Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff and I'm a paediatric oncologist and today I'm going to be talking about some more of the drugs that we use in the treatment of childhood cancer. And in particular, I'm going to be talking about drugs called Dornarubicin and Doxarubicin and also a couple of other drugs that are less commonly used. That's Idarubicin and Epirubicin and Mitoxantrone. Now, Dornarubicin and Doxarubicin are the most commonly used of this group. And the first thing to point out is that these drugs are red in colour. And I think that's what rubicin really means, that it refers to their red colour. Now, the exception is mitoxantrone is blue. And if someone can tell me why mitoxantrone is blue, even though it's from a sort of similar family of drugs, well, I'd be very interested to hear it. Why don't you tell us at the Facebook page? But no, these drugs are mostly red in colour. And they're members of a family of drugs called the anthracyclines. Anthracyclines. Now, I wouldn't dwell on that because it's some complicated chemical thing and that's why they're called anthracyclines. But anyway, if you're reading about them, you'll see them all grouped together as the anthracycline drugs. So the first thing I'm going to do is talk about what diseases we use these in. Then I'm going to talk about how we give these drugs. And then I'll talk about the side effects that might occur. So Dornarubicin and Doxarubicin I'll mostly talk about. Why don't we get the others out of the way? Idarubicin is mostly used in acute myeloid leukemia, if it's going to be used anywhere. Epirubicin, I haven't really ever used epirubicin, but it's been used in the past in some of the sarcoma studies in Europe. I'm not sure who's using epirubicin anymore. And mitoxantrone certainly is used in the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia as well. Now, dornarubicin is mostly used in the treatment of leukemia and lymphoma. Dornarubicin. So it's one of the key drugs that's given in a lot of cases of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's an important drug in the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia and it's commonly used in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. You've got to remember a lot of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma patients are treated with essentially the same treatment that is used to treat acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And so oftentimes what you say about leukemia applies to lymphoma. Not always though. So that's where Dornarubicin is mostly used. Now Doxarubicin is used in acute lymphoblastic leukemia as well and in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But it's also used in a few other diseases. It's used in Hodgkin's lymphoma and then it's used in sarcomas pretty commonly. So it's part of the routine treatment in Ewing sarcoma and osteogenic sarcoma. And it's used in certain cases of rhabdomyosarcoma. It's also often used in other soft tissue sarcomas, not rhabdomyosarcoma. It's used in certain patients with Wilms tumour, particularly stage 3 and stage 4 Wilms tumour. And it's often used in the patients with Wilms tumour who have some sort of unfavourable histology or biology to their tumour. So anaplastic Wilms tumours or the clear cell sarcomas and those other types of uh, tumours that we see in the kidney. It's an important drug 
in the treatment of neuroblastoma. So doxorubicin is routinely given in neuroblastoma patients who have high-risk disease. Now, in patients with intermediate risk disease, there's different combinations of chemotherapy, but often they will include the use of doxorubicin as well. Doxorubicin, dornorubicin, not used in brain tumours really. There has been a little bit of research on those in the past. I think that still doxorubicin might be being looked at in atypical teratoid rhabdoid brain tumour, but really not in the other brain tumour types. And then there's the remaining tumours, less common types of childhood cancer, and some of them have a role for doxorubicin as well. But basically it goes like this, that dornorubicin is used in the leukaemia and lymphomas, whereas doxorubicin is used in leukaemia and lymphoma, but is also the one that tends to be used in the solid tumours, the ones that aren't leukaemia. Next, I want to talk about how we give dornorubicin and doxorubicin. Well, they're always given intravenously. These are drugs that are always given into a vein. And most of the time, patients will have some sort of a central line or an infuser port or portacath. So most of the time, we'll be giving it into that central line. You can give these drugs just into a vein. You can put a needle in a vein and give these drugs. But you've got to be very careful because... These drugs are what you call vesicant drugs. I talked about this in the Vincristine podcast. Vesicant drugs are drugs that if they leak out of the vein and into the surrounding tissues, they'll cause terrible damage to the surrounding tissues. They'll burn the surrounding skin and they can damage tendons and nerves. And, you know, it can be really terrible. It can end up needing skin grafts. You can experience scarring. It can be very painful. So it's a real disaster. So that's why if we're going to use a vein for dornorubicin or doxorubicin, then we really want to know that that drip really is in the vein and it hasn't been there for too long and starting to leak into the surrounding tissues. So it's a vesicant drug. And we've got to be very careful using uh, when we use just a drip that's in a normal vein. Most of the time we'll find these days patients have a central line and so we don't have to worry about that so much. Now as for how the drug is given, well it can be given by what you call a bolus. That's like an IV push. So that's an example of where you hook up the drug maybe with a syringe and you can push it in over just a matter of 10, 15, 30 seconds. That's what you call a bolus injection, B-O-L-U-S, bolus injection, or an IV push. Alternatively, it can be put into a bag or a syringe driver and infused over some period of time. So some protocols have it given over 15 minutes, some give the drug over one hour, some over six hours, and then there's some prolonged infusion schedules where the drug's given over you know, 24 hours a day or even a 72-hour infusion schedule. So there's a number of different ways that these drugs are given and there's often some sort of scientific basis for giving it over a shorter period or a longer period, but often there's no great scientific basis to it, if you ask me. It's often uh, what was used in a previous study or a previous era and if the drug was shown to work, well, then people are scared to tamper with what seemed to work in the past. So that's how it's given. It's always intravenous and it can be given quickly or it might be given over a longer period of time. 
Now, when we treat leukemia and we're giving dornarubicin or doxorubicin, particularly acute lymphoblastic leukemia, it's usually given every week. For instance, in the induction phase of ALL, we're giving it every week along with vincristine. So in those situations, it's a lower dose, but it's given every week. Normally, when you're using doxorubicin to treat solid tumours, well, the dose might be higher on each occasion. It might not be, but oftentimes it is higher, and sometimes it has to be given daily for two days, for instance, because it's a higher dose. We split the dose up. But usually when you're giving those sorts of solid tumour doses, then the bone marrow will drop, the blood counts will drop afterwards, and then we need to allow typically about three weeks for the blood counts to recover before we can give the next dose. Now, sometimes it's two weeks, particularly in Ewing sarcoma and some of the rhabdomyosarcoma protocols, but oftentimes you allow about three weeks before you're ready to give the drug again. Now I want to talk about some of the side effects of dornarubicin and doxorubicin. And the important thing to know is that dose is very important when you look at how severe will side effects be. And there are all sorts of different dosing schedules that are used. Uh, so you might use a lower dose given every week in leukemia, or you might use a medium-sized dose in certain patients with Wilms tumour, or you might use a higher dose in some of the sarcoma protocols, and there's even protocols with very high dose doxorubicin up to about 90 milligrams per metre squared of body surface area in some of the very high-risk sarcoma protocols. So the dose is all important when you look at, well, what can we expect for side effects? But some of the side effects are pretty predictable and reliable as to what might occur irrespective of what dose is used. So first off, when you're actually infusing the drug, probably you won't notice much. Uh, mostly you'll just watch the drug dripping in or infusing in through the central line and there won't be much to see. Now, the first thing that might happen might be that the patient develops nausea or gets some vomiting. And dornarubicin and doxorubicin, they're pretty bad drugs as far as causing nausea and vomiting. So usually we would be giving the patient something to prevent nausea and vomiting as we start this drug. So, for instance, we might give ondansetron or other units might use a different one of the ondansetron family of drugs. They're the serotonin inhibitors. Anyway, so most patients being given one of these drugs will routinely be given something to stop nausea and vomiting. But that's the first thing that you might see happen with these drugs. Other things that will occur as far as acute side effects, namely side effects that are going to occur in those weeks of treatment, well, the hair will often fall out with dornarubicin and doxorubicin. It's one of the worst drugs for causing that. Hair grows back when we stop giving it, but mostly once you start these drugs, then a few weeks later the hair will start to fall out in wispy bits and eventually fall out. It varies from one patient to the next. Some have more severe hair loss than others, but it's pretty common to see some hair loss with these drugs. Next thing that might occur is mouth ulcers. See, dornarubicin and doxorubicin, they're in those families of drugs that mess up the DNA in dividing cells. That's how they kill cancer. So cancer cells have to keep copying the DNA in each cell so that they can make the next pair of cells and the next pair of cells. So 
Dawn Arubison and Dox Arubison mess up the DNA of dividing cells. The problem is they also mess up the DNA of normal cells. And so any cells that are normally active and dividing cells, well, they tend to get hit in the crossfire. So the lining of your mouth, for instance, the lining of your mouth has cells on it, and those cells are always replacing each other. Have you ever noticed how if you bite your tongue or your cheek, within a day or two, it seems to have recovered? Well, that's because the cells in your mouth are rapidly dividing cells and always replacing themselves and healing up where you bit your tongue or the side of your mouth. And so Dorna rubicin and Doxa rubicin can damage those cells and so that can cause mouth ulcers. And again, it's going to depend on what dose of Dorna rubicin or Doxa rubicin you used. If you're using a higher dose, then the risk of mouth ulcers might be more severe. It also depends on what other chemotherapy you're giving with it. Normally, Dorna rubicin and Doxa rubicin aren't given alone, but they're normally given in combination with some other drugs. That's how we do things in treating cancer. And so if you've also received a bunch of other drugs that can cause mouth ulcers, well then, the mouth ulcers that might develop may be that much more severe. And mouth ulcers can be a real problem. If you've ever had a mouth ulcer, you'll know they're really quite painful things. And so if you have a mouth full of mouth ulcers, well, that can be a problem. And patients can end up needing to be admitted to hospital and put on a morphine infusion or a fentanyl infusion, you know, really strong pain medicines. And oftentimes they can end up needing to have intravenous fluids until their mouth heals up and they can start drinking again. So mouth ulcers can be a problem. Again, it depends on the dose and it depends on what other drugs you're giving with it. Next major class of side effects are the bone marrow side effects. I hope you've listened to my Introduction to Chemotherapy podcast because that will describe bone marrow side effects a bit more. But the bone marrow is a very active tissue in your body. It's always pumping out blood cells. Well, when you give these drugs on, say, day one, well, the bone marrow takes a hit and the production of blood stops for a few days. And so, you know, 10 days later, 12 days later, something like that, all of the blood counts can drop from Dornarubicin and Doxarubicin. So we might see low hemoglobin level develop, you know, the red cells, and end up needing a blood transfusion if it goes severe enough. We might see a low platelet count, and so a tendency to spontaneous bruising may end up needing to give a platelet transfusion. And we may see a low white blood cell count develop, and a low white cell count always brings a risk of being susceptible to infections. And so people on these drugs, if they get a fever, they really need to be straight to hospital to see if they need to go on antibiotics. So bone marrow suppression is quite common with these drugs. How severe it is, again, depends on what dose you use and what other drugs you give with it as to how severe will the bone marrow suppression be. Now, bone marrow suppression is normally something that happens and then it recovers and then often we give the drugs again. So typically blood counts go down and then they go up within about a three-week cycle, sometimes a two-week cycle. It all depends on the dose. What are the drugs? How much chemotherapy has the patient already had? What's the state of their bone marrow? Have they had leukemia or not, for instance? So these things all influence how severe that effect on the bone marrow will be. Now they're the main acute side effects I want to talk about. There's always a fine print. There's always the less common stuff. It's always out there. But as far as the things that you really think are likely to happen when you use Dornarubicin or Doxarubicin, 
they'd be the main ones. So nausea and vomiting would be a risk, hair loss would be a risk, mouth ulcers are a risk, maybe irritation of the intestine as well. That can cause tummy pains and it can cause diarrhoea and low blood counts. They're the main ones I'd be thinking of. Then there's the fine print. One to mention, just for your information, there is a curious thing that can happen when you give radiotherapy and doxorubicin or dornorubicin together. In fact, very often we just don't give them together because, see, what can happen is uh, when you're giving radiation therapy to a certain area of the body, well, if you give doxorubicin or dornorubicin together, then that can make the effect of radiotherapy increased. And so the skin, for instance, might get more redness or any other tissues that the radiation doctors are worried about well, they might suffer more damage if you give dornorubicin or doxorubicin at the same time. So oftentimes you can give doxorubicin right at the start of radiotherapy, but during the weeks of radiotherapy, oftentimes they don't want us to give any dornorubicin or any doxorubicin. Also interesting is something called a radiation recall reaction. So after the patients finish their radiotherapy and then some weeks go by, Sometimes if we then start up with doxorubicin or dornorubicin again, all of a sudden the redness of the skin that they had back during radiotherapy might suddenly appear again. That's called a radiation recall reaction. Okay, now the side effects I've talked about so far are the ones that happen during and after the treatment with these drugs, but normally then recover, and then after the end of all the chemotherapy Everything recovers and it's no longer a problem anymore. Next, I want to talk about long-term side effects, things that are a risk for being a permanent side effect with the use of dornorubicin or doxorubicin. And this applies also to idorubicin, epirubicin, mitoxantrin. And the really big and important one here is cardiac side effects. Cardiac, heart these drugs can weaken the muscle of the heart. The heart is, of course, a complicated muscle, and its job in life is just to keep on pumping and to pump blood all around the body. So the muscle of the heart is critically important. These anthracycline drugs can damage the muscle of the heart and weaken the pumping of the heart. And this is the most critically important side effect of these drugs. And it's the reason why we really wish we could find better drugs to use. But we know these are very important drugs to curing a lot of children with cancer. But we dearly wish we could find a way to cure children without using these drugs. The risk of damaging the heart is related to the total cumulative dosing of the drugs that's being given. So what we do is we add up every dose that the patients had and then we can work out the cumulative dose that the patient has received. And that's the critically important thing as far as determining that risk of damaging the heart. So children that are going to have treatment with dornorubicin or doxorubicin would normally undergo some sort of heart test before they start the drug to check that they have a normal heart. So we would normally do something called an echocardiogram. An echocardiogram is a bit like an ultrasound, but it's a specialised ultrasound of the heart 
and it looks at the function of the heart. And in particular, you're looking for the function of the left ventricle. That's the biggest pumping chamber of the heart. So we'll be looking at the left ventricular function to check what it's like at the start of treatment. Then, after a few doses of these drugs, we would normally repeat this echocardiogram and check, has there been any change to the heart function? And if we saw a change in the heart function, we'd have to look at things very closely and very carefully and work out whether it was safe to give any more dornorubicin or doxorubicin. Now, of course, we're trying to cure cancer here, trying to cure leukemia. So just dropping one of our most important drugs isn't something to do lightly. But if there was a concern about the heart function, it would certainly be something we would have to look at very carefully and decide what to do. So typically, we'd give a few doses of the drugs and then be repeating the heart tests. Now, as time goes on and we're still giving more drugs, we'll be aware of a total cumulative dose of the drug that we've given and we have a sense of what is the total cumulative dose where we start to get into trouble as far as that risk of heart problems developing. So, for instance, if we add up all of the doses of doxorubicin we've given, and remember they're dosed in milligrams per metre squared of body surface area, so if your body surface area is one metre squared, and we calculate this with our charts, then we add up all the doses you've had. And if it all adds up to, say, just 100 milligrams per metre squared, well, we would think that's not a high cumulative dose of doxorubicin that we've given. Once we get above about 250 and 300 milligrams per metre squared, then we feel like we're getting into higher cumulative doses and most of the time we don't have protocols that give more than about 450 milligrams per meter squared of doxorubicin. Now that's because we think we have a sense of what's a safe amount that the body can handle. So we've got these total cumulative dosing estimates of what we think will be a safe amount that the patient can handle. The problem is that this damage that can occur to the heart might be a very delayed thing. So we might give the drugs during treatment and the heart function might look perfectly normal. But it might be that 10 years later, 20 years later, 40 years later, we might then see abnormalities starting to develop in heart function that were caused by the use of these drugs. So it's a big problem. We can be reassured by our tests done during treatment, but we know that late abnormalities can develop. Like I said, might be decades later. So even those cumulative doses that we think are going to be okay, it might be that in decades to come we find that they are actually leading to some sort of cardiac damage to the heart. There's a lot of research going on trying to work out if some people are more sensitive to the damage from these drugs to the heart than others. It might be one day that we can do DNA tests and work out who's more likely to get cardiac damage from the anthracycline drugs. And they might be patients where we try to use alternative drugs. 
So that's a work in progress and we don't really have an established way to apply that information yet, but people are certainly looking at it. There's other things to consider. If a patient is also going to have radiotherapy, for instance, that's going to involve the heart, then you need to factor that into your cumulative dosing schedules. And so particularly patients with Hodgkin's disease often need radiotherapy to lymph glands near the heart. And if that radiotherapy will involve the heart, then you have to be extra careful with the dosing of doxorubicin. The other thing to mention is that when you add up all these doses of drugs, it depends which one you've actually received. So you can't add up milligrams of dornorubicin and doxorubicin and idorubicin and mitoxantrone as equivalent milligrams. There's uh, tables and charts that show you how to convert the different drugs uh, pound for pound, if you like, to work out an equivalent risk of cardiac damage occurring. So with the anthracycline drugs, the big issue is always cardiac function. Now, like I said, it may be something that can occur decades later, but we have to be careful during treatment. We have to monitor the heart function and we have to be aware of this risk when we go using these drugs to treat a given form of cancer. They are some of the best drugs we have, and in most situations where we're using them, we have very good, solid data to indicate that the chances to cure the cancer are better by using these drugs than by not using them. So they're very important drugs. We just have to be very careful. Now, as far as other long-term side effects from dornorubicin and doxorubicin are concerned, first let's talk about fertility. There are chemotherapy drugs that can cause infertility. I wouldn't say that these drugs are top of the list as far as risk of infertility, but they would not be helpful for fertility. There is a possibility that they could lead to some impairment in fertility. So there are much worse drugs uh, than dornorubicin and doxorubicin for causing infertility, but these would provide some risk of impairing fertility. What about the risk of causing a second malignancy? That's one of the things we're always looking at when we talk about long-term side effects of chemotherapy drugs. Well, again, there are other drugs that are much worse offenders as far as causing a risk of a second malignancy causing a leukemia to occur 5, 10, 20 years later. Other drugs bring a much greater risk of a second malignancy. However, I think the data would show that dornorubicin and doxorubicin, they would have some increased risk of a second malignancy occurring later in life. Now again, these risks are not great. And when we're using these drugs, we're trying to treat and to cure an existing cancer. But it is the case that there will be a slightly increased risk of other malignancies later in life from the treatment that's used. And that risk will, of course, be influenced by other drugs in the chemotherapy program, use of radiotherapy, the nature of the original cancer, etc. So I think it's fair to say that dornorubicin and doxorubicin would bring a slightly higher risk of getting another malignancy later in life maybe leukemia, for instance, but that would be a slight risk. And again, we're using these to treat cancer and we know them to be some of the best drugs to cure cancer. 
Now, just a couple of final things to mention about these drugs. There are some newer preparations of these drugs. So there's uh, liposomal forms of these drugs that have been developed. Uh, liposomes, you've probably seen in the cosmetics industry, these little tiny, fatty little particles that you can encapsulate the drug into. Um, so there are some liposomal dornarubicin, doxorubicin preparations out there. I think we're still waiting to see what advantages they might bring. There's a lot of research into cardioprotectant drugs. So drugs that you could give at the same time as dornarubicin or doxorubicin to try to protect the heart but not protect the cancer. So there's a lot of work taking place in this area as well. But I think I'll stop there. That's my spiel on dornarubicin and doxorubicin. Everything I've said pretty much applies to idarubicin and to epirubicin and then to the blue drug, mitoxantrone. All of these drugs are within this family of drugs we call anthracyclines. So thanks for listening in to Understanding Childhood Cancer. Please leave some comments at the Facebook page. Tell me if I need to clarify anything, if anything was confusing or if I didn't explain it properly. Give me some stars and... Apart from that, I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.